This is the third of our talks in this series. We started a couple of months ago looking at heaven now. The last time, heaven to come. And when we asked the question last time, what are we waiting for? We summarized the Bible's teaching by saying we are waiting for heaven on earth. The current earth is broken along with everything in it, on it. But the Bible tells us God is not going to abandon his creation. He is going to renew it. That's what Jesus promised. The renewal of all things. Both our bodies and the rest of creation. Jesus taught it. The Apostle Paul taught that. You find that in Romans 8. The Apostle Peter taught that. And along with those who agree with Jesus, Paul and Peter, we have Martin Lloyd-Jones, who many of you will have heard of. He says, heaven on earth, that is where we will spend our eternity. God's plan of redemption is not complete until there is an earth for man to live in and on in the body. And the final chapters of the Bible picture heaven coming to earth, that becoming reality. That's what we dealt with last time, the big idea, or the big picture of what we're waiting for. Today we're going to try to think about the details of that big picture. What is heaven on earth going to be like? So let's start with the essence of heaven. There are lots of things we could say about heaven, but what is the core of it? What is the one fundamental aspect of heaven? The essence of heaven is the presence of God. Now it is true that God is present with us now by his Holy Spirit. But it's also true that we do not experience God's presence in the immediate way Adam and Eve did. The opening chapters of Genesis speak of God bringing the animals to Adam. They speak of God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. When the man and woman sinned, they were then barred from God's presence. Partly as a judgment on their sin and partly as a mercy to them because sinful people could not survive in the immediate presence of God. They would be obliterated by his holiness. That's why in the book of Exodus, God says to Moses, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Seeing God's face is a way of talking about being directly in his presence. Sin has made that impossible. But the Bible is clear, that is not how it should be. It's not how it's supposed to be. And so when God's people look to the future, what they long for above all else is for that to be put right. They long to experience the immediate presence of God. And so in the Psalms, when David looks to life beyond the grave, he says to God, you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. In the very next Psalm, David says, I shall see your face. When I wake, meaning on the other side of death, I shall be satisfied with seeing your likeness. So the inability to see God's face is the fundamental loss you and I have suffered because of our sin, along with the whole human race. The worst consequence of our sin is not that we have aches and pains. 
It's not even that we have horrible disease in the world or that human relationships are such a struggle. The very worst consequence of sin is that we're cut off from God's presence. And that is what God's people have always longed for most. The restoration of the immediate presence of God. And when God made promises to his people through the Old Testament prophets, at the very heart of all those promises for the future was this. God repeats it again and again. My dwelling place will be with them. No more barriers, no more veils, no more separation. And when we get to Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, we find the new heaven and earth being described for us. And what is the very central element of that reality? They will see his face. We will have what we have been missing most. We will be blessed with the greatest blessing we ever could be blessed with. We will experience and enjoy the direct presence of our Creator. Or as John puts it in his first letter, we shall see him as he is. The essence of heaven is God himself. His person, his presence, he is our inheritance. And that is what we really long for. One writer says, we may imagine we want a thousand different things, but God is the one we really long for. His presence brings satisfaction. His absence brings thirst and longing. Our longing for heaven is a longing for God. A longing that involves not only our inner beings, but our bodies as well. Being with God is the heart and soul of heaven. Every other heavenly pleasure will derive from and be secondary to his presence. God's greatest gift to us is and always will be himself. So then if we go on to ask, what will be the activity of heaven, bearing in mind all we've just said, what else could it be except unhindered worship? In 1 Corinthians, when Paul describes the reality of heaven, he says, God will be all in all. It will all revolve around him. Our lives will revolve around him. Our thoughts and our activity will revolve around him. We're not like that now. At the very best, we could say God is sometimes the center of our lives and our thinking. But a lot of the time, if we're honest, he's on the periphery of our minds and hearts. And even though we might think that's normal, it's not. It's probably the core aspect of our brokenness. The fact that the greatest treasure in the universe is often not that interesting to us. The fact that lesser treasures can turn our attention from God in a second. It can take tremendous effort to tear ourselves away from lesser things and try to focus on God. That's not the way it's supposed to be. It's a tragic consequence of our brokenness. Even as Christians, we can hardly tell what's good for us. 
Another video of cats falling off tables seems much more interesting to us than prayer. Speaking to the lover of our souls. But in heaven, that ridiculous situation is going to be rectified. God will be all in all to us. Some of you may have heard of Johnny Erickson. As a young woman, she was involved in a diving accident. And that accident left her paralyzed from the neck down. She has lived the majority of her life with incredibly limited physical capabilities. And so we might think we can guess what she is most looking forward to about heaven. Surely it must be a renewed, restored body. When she can do all the things she hasn't been able to do here. But listen to what she says. Yes, it will be wonderful to stand, stretch, and reach to the sky. But it will be more wonderful to offer praise that is pure and won't be crippled by distractions, disabled by insincerity, handicapped by a ho-hum half-heartedness. And whether you and I realize it or not, that will be the most wonderful thing for us too. It's what we were made for. To delight completely in the most delightful one there is. Speaking personally, I love sport. I love music. I love a whole lot of other things. But I look forward to the day when those good things will no longer distract me from the best thing. I'm not saying that the things I enjoy now won't be part of the new heaven and earth. But I'm glad that if they are part of it, they will somehow be part of my focus on God. They won't be a distraction from that. Augustine was one of the greatest preachers and writers the church has ever had. And this is his comment on what we've just been thinking about. What did God mean when he said in the words of the prophet, I shall be their God and they will be my people? Did he not mean, I shall be the source of their satisfaction? I shall be everything that man can honorably desire. Life, health, food, wealth, glory, honor, peace, and every blessing. For that is also the correct interpretation of the apostles' words, so that God may be all in all. He will be the goal of our longings, and we shall see him forever. We shall love him without satiety. In other words, without growing tired of loving him. We shall praise him without wearying. This will be the duty, the delight, the activity of all. Our enjoyment of God's direct presence and our unhindered worship will combine in our experience of heaven, which will be eternal satisfaction. Philip Ryken says, Can we even conceive of this? Of all the cursed things we suffer in this fallen world, our underlying discontent is one of the worst. Life never measures up to our expectations. Even at the best of times, some little disappointment gets in the way of total happiness. 
But it won't be that way in heaven. Why not? Because we will be with the one who cannot disappoint us. We will be with the one who can only exceed our expectations. And that will be true forever. At moments of utter happiness, a voice inside us whispers, I want this to go on forever. In heaven, it will. Our satisfaction in God will be eternal. Those are the core realities of heaven to come. Those are the central things. But we can go on to ask, what else? Here are five other truths about heaven to come. It will be different, yet familiar. Listen to one of Isaiah's descriptions of the new heaven and earth. He says, The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So think about what we've just read. And then ask yourself this question. Does that sound different from what we experience now? I think the answer has to be yes. We go back. On this earth today, do wolves and leopards and lions lie down with lambs and goats and calves? Well, not unless they've killed them first. Do bears share their lunch with cows? Not unless the cow is the lunch. Do lions eat straw instead of meat? No. Do children play with cobra and viper nests without disaster? No. Is our world free from harm and destruction? No. Isaiah gives us a very different picture from what we're used to. But... Is it an entirely unfamiliar picture? Is it totally incomprehensible to us? It's not, is it? It's what we know minus the hostility and the violence. Minus the harm and the destruction. That's what the new creation will be. So a writer who I've mentioned a lot helps us to think about this, Randy Alcorn. It's a long quote, but I think it's helpful. He says, we're told that heaven is a city. When we hear the word city, we shouldn't scratch our heads and think, I wonder what that means. We understand cities. Cities have buildings, culture, art, music, athletics, goods and services, events of all kinds. And of course, cities have people. 
engaged in activities, gatherings, conversations, and work. Heaven is also described as a country. We know about countries. They have territories, rulers, national interests, pride in their identity, and citizens who are both diverse and unified. If we can't imagine our present earth without rivers, mountains, trees, and flowers, then why would we try to imagine the new earth without these features? If the word earth means anything, it means that we can expect to find earthly things there, including atmosphere, mountains, water, trees, people, houses, even cities, buildings, and streets. These familiar features are specifically mentioned in Revelation 21 and 22. We're told we'll have resurrection bodies. When God speaks of having those bodies, do we shrug our shoulders and say, I can't imagine what a new body would be like? No, of course we can imagine it. We know what a body is. We've had one all our lives. Now, just to be clear... I wouldn't be too dogmatic about the idea that every good feature of this earth is going to be carried over to the new heaven and earth. I just don't know about sport or books or pets or coffee or crafts or cooking or riding bikes or playing musical instruments. I can't say for sure those things will all have a place in the future. But I have no evidence they won't be there. Alcorn is asking a reasonable question. If we're going to be in real bodies on a real earth, why wouldn't we do many of the same things we do now? Just without the sin. So the point is, what we are heading to is not going to be entirely alien. The Bible takes great pains to tell us, as different as it's going to be, living in renewed bodies on a renewed earth, there will be some definite continuity with what we have here and now. A lot of the things we do now, we do them not because we're sinners, we do them because we're people in bodies on the earth. So why would we imagine all the good things we do and enjoy now are just going to disappear? Another writer says, Heaven is beyond our understanding, but not our comprehension. It will be amazing, astounding, and overwhelming, but it will not be strange. I don't think there's any harm at all in letting our imaginations wander on this subject a little bit. Now, just because we imagine something doesn't mean that's how it's going to be. We have to keep that in mind. But as Christians, I think we're often too hesitant to think about heaven. It's good for us to wonder about these things. It's good for us to take the pieces of the picture that God has given us and try to put them together. So long as we keep in mind that the essence of heaven is God himself, then I think it's healthy and it's uplifting for us to read the Bible's description of the future and let our minds run with it a bit. What would it be like to live in a world like the one described in Isaiah chapter 11? A world without harm and destruction. 
Why shouldn't we dream about a world like that? Surely dreaming about it will cause us to long for it more. Surely it will help us to keep the things of this broken world in their proper perspective. The second truth about heaven to come. It will be a place of perfect rest. Revelation tells us, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Not just the sorrow and pain will be gone, but everything that caused the sorrow and pain. No more natural disasters. No more sickness. No more persecution. No more satanic oppression. No more poverty. No more racism. And no more sinful inclinations in our own hearts. Isn't that often what causes a great deal of our lack of rest here and now? Isn't it often caused by our own waywardness and rebellion? In Galatians, Paul writes to Christians and he describes an experience I think we're all familiar with. The flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. In other words, even as Christians, we are at war with ourselves. We can't trust our desires. It is not safe for us to do whatever we want. A lot of what we want is sinful and destructive. To us as well as to the people around us. Our own physical desires are so unruly they seem to be at war with what we know to be right. And that is a war we have to fight. We dare not surrender to the sinful desires which wage war against our soul. But one day we will be at rest. Not only with the world around us but also at rest with ourselves. Not because we've surrendered to sin, but because we have been renewed in righteousness. We'll be at rest because the battle with our sinful desires has been won once and for all. We looked earlier at John's statement that when Christ returns, we shall see him as he is. But the first part of that sentence in 1 John is just as amazing as the second part. John says, when Christ appears, we shall be like him. What was Jesus like? Well, God the Son not only did his Father's will, he desired it more than anything else. And when we are like Jesus, we will be like that too. The war within us will be over. There will be perfect peace in our hearts. Because the rebellion is finally and fully gone from our hearts. In Romans chapter 8, Paul speaks about the glory that will be revealed in us. The glory of hearts and minds and wills perfectly at one with our Creator. One of the greatest truths about heaven is the fact that our sins are doomed. In 
heaven we will experience perfect rest. With our environment, with each other, and within ourselves. And at the same time, heaven will be a place of fulfilling work. Maybe it's hard for us to imagine how rest and work can go together. But in heaven they will. God's intention for humanity has always been that we would work. In Genesis chapter 1 we read this. God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, over all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves in the ground. Work was part of the plan from the very beginning. And notice how that work is described. Our responsibility as human beings is to rule over God's creation. And in chapter 2, we see some of what that involved. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So that settles any misunderstandings about what it means to rule over the creation. It does not mean we are to exploit it. It means we are to take care of it. The man and the woman were to rule for the good of creation. But then came sin. What was sin? The man and woman rebelled against God's rule over them. That was also the kind of rule intended to take care of them, not exploit them. God's rule was not exploitative. It was for their good, but they rebelled against that rule and then their own work became toil. To Adam, he, that's God, said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Notice there, God never removed humanity's commission to take care of the earth. He said that because of sin, humanity's work would now be a whole lot harder and a whole lot less fulfilling than it would have been. And when we read on in the Bible and we find it looking ahead to the future, it doesn't speak about a future where we will be idle. It assumes we will always have the same commission to rule God's creation. But when all things are renewed, our experience of work will also be renewed. The toil and frustration will be gone. We said earlier, the activity of heaven will be unhindered worship. But we shouldn't limit our idea of worship to just singing songs around God's throne. We will worship him as we use our creativity and our skills to rule his creation. 
And maybe at this point we want to ask, but what about God? Isn't that what he's going to be doing? Well, let's think back to Genesis. When God commissioned Adam and Eve to rule his creation, does that mean he was going on holiday? No, the Bible presents him as the sovereign Lord of all. The Lord who commissions humanity to rule under his sovereign rule. And isn't that what's going on today? We believe God is always awake and he's always sovereign. Jesus said, my father is always at his work. We believe that. We take confidence and reassurance from that. But we don't use it as an excuse to do nothing ourselves. And we will not start doing that in the new heaven and earth. In fact, what we find in the New Testament are statements like these. Speaking about Jesus, Paul says, Here is a trustworthy saying, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And those kind of statements start to come thick and fast in the book of Revelation. Jesus says to his church, to the one who is victorious, and in the context that means the one who stays faithful to the end, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. That's an amazing thing for Jesus to say. Revelation chapter 5 shows us a scene in the throne room of the current heaven. The risen Lord Jesus in Revelation 5 is being welcomed into the throne room of heaven with a song. And the song goes like this. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. That's repeated at the end of Revelation. Heaven to come will be a place of fulfilling work. We will in some sense, it's very hard for us to understand, be co-regents with God himself. Under his sovereign authority. But we will be dignified with genuine responsibility to take care of his new creation. Number four, heaven to come will be a place of community. Edward Donnelly says, The great images of the Bible are corporate. The holy city... The kingdom, which cannot be shaken. The marriage supper of the Lamb. These portray heavenly existence as essentially life in community. Where a vital part of fullness of joy will be our personal relationships and interaction. And those relationships and interactions will be free from sin. Free from misunderstanding. Free from unkindness and deceit and betrayal. They'll be free from rivalry and division. In John's Gospel, Jesus prays to his Father, asking his Father that his followers may be 
one. Just as Jesus and his Father are one. Perfectly united, perfectly harmonious. And one day, Jesus' prayer will be perfectly answered. But the answer to Jesus' prayer will not be a dull uniformity. Heaven will be diverse in the very best sense of the word. Randy Alcorn says that on the new earth, we'll never celebrate sin, but we'll celebrate diversity in the biblical sense. Peace on earth will be accomplished not by the abolition of our differences, but by a unifying loyalty to the king. A loyalty that transcends differences and is enriched by them. There's no reason at all from what we're told in scripture to believe we're all going to look the same. Or have the same personalities. Or even the same interests. In terms of secondary interests. We will all share the same overriding devotion to God. As Alcorn says, we will be unified by our loyalty to the king. But that doesn't mean we'll be uniform. Here and now, our differences are also often sources of friction for us. But when sin is gone... Our differences will be part of the delight of heaven. When Revelation pictures that great multitude round God's throne, they're all singing one song, but they are still recognizably distinct. John is able to tell us they're from every nation, tribe, people, and language. John would not have been able to tell us that if they all looked the same and sounded the same. Community in heaven will be community as it was meant to be. Heaven will also be a place of rewards. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 25. In the Green Bibles, it's page 904. I'm not sure of the page in the other Bibles. Matthew 25. This is a section in Matthew that Steve will get to before too long. It's where Jesus is talking about his future kingdom. That's his broad subject. And in chapter 25, verses 14 to 20, he tells a parable to teach a truth about his kingdom. Verse 14, it will be like a man going on a journey. He called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. 
The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. Forever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this story, obviously Jesus is describing his own departure and the intervening period where his servants are to work, serving him, and then his return when the rewards are distributed. And obviously from those final verses, part of what Jesus is saying here is that those who refuse to serve him now will be excluded from his future kingdom. We'll look at that reality next time. But the point for you and me to notice this afternoon is that those who do serve faithfully in this life are rewarded in the kingdom to come. And as Jesus presents it, the rewards come in the form of greater responsibilities in the future kingdom. Look again at verse 21. The master says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And in other places where he tells similar parables, Jesus says there will be differing degrees of reward. Greater faithfulness now, Jesus says, will lead to greater reward in the future. And somehow that will happen without envy rising up in those who receive less and without pride taking root in those who receive more. Augustine says about Jesus' words, there will be such distinctions. Of that there can be no doubt. And yet no inferior will feel envy of his superior any more than the other angels are envious of the archangels. No one will wish to be what it has not been granted him to be. And yet he will be in the closest bond of peaceful harmony with the one to whom it has been granted. And so although one will have a gift inferior to another, he will also have the compensatory gift of contentment with what he has. Difference in rewards will coexist with equality of contentment. Let's finish with the question we finished at last time. What difference does this make today?
if this is what we're waiting for and if this is what we're looking forward to, how does it impact our lives here and now, in the meantime? Last time we answered that with just one word, hope. Our hope of heaven keeps us going here and now. When you and I can see the shore, we won't give up. And the Bible shows us that golden shore that's ahead of us. But can we say more about how what's ahead makes a difference here and now? I think we can add two more aspects. Very simply, it impacts our interest in holiness and it impacts our commitment to faithful service. First, our interest in holiness. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If our treasure is in heaven, and if the Bible tells us heaven is where righteousness dwells, then surely we will be very interested in pursuing righteousness here and now. If the Bible tells us nothing impure will ever enter God's new heaven and earth, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. If that's true, then surely we will be very interested in setting aside impurity, setting aside what is shameful and deceitful from our lives. Sin will have no part in our future. So why would we get comfortable with it? Why would we tolerate it here and now? When writer says, When I have meditated on heaven, sin is terribly unappealing. It's when my mind drifts from heaven that sin seems attractive. Thinking of heaven leads inevitably to pursuing holiness. And second, and last of all, when we've been thinking about heaven, it makes a difference now to our commitment to faithful service. Heaven teaches us that life on this earth matters. What we do here touches strings that will reverberate for all eternity. Because of that truth that the Apostle Paul could say to Christians, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It often seems in vain right now, doesn't it? That used to bother me when I read Psalm 1. Because someone says about God's faithful people, whatever they do prospers. It doesn't seem like that here and now. Plenty of what we do in God's service doesn't seem to prosper. Those comments in Scripture in Psalm 1 and in plenty of other places, they only make sense if we hear them in light of the whole story. When we look at our acts of service in that full context, then it becomes clear nothing we do for God will ever be in vain. Our service for him 
will prosper in the end. What we do for God's glory here and now touches strings that reverberate for all eternity. Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. So here's a challenge for us to end with. Make your daily decisions in light of your destiny. Ask yourself what you can do today, next week, next year, or decades from now to write the best ending to this volume of your life story. A story that will continue gloriously in the new universe. I don't know if you have any questions to follow on from that comments.